thank you for having me here to present to you this afternoon. Um, and I do obviously present to you, as is obviously evident by my appearance, that I come to you uh, someone with a civilian background. And what I would um, say is that I've, I've been fortunate enough to be coming out here to Three Brigade for a couple of years now. So I feel like, and, and I've spoken at other bases around the country, so I do feel that I've been privileged to have a very small snapshot into what is your world and, and would acknowledge absolutely from the outset that that is all that that is, is a snapshot. So um, I'll be requiring a little bit of your wisdom today as we, as we work through some of this material because my understanding of the brief that I was given in presenting is that with the scenario that you have to consider over the coming days, what might be some of the things that I can offer to you what are some of the things that I can get you thinking about? What are some of the curious questions you can be asking that will help inform you as you're making decisions with relation to the scenario that you're working on? So it's been a really interesting presentation for me to reflect on personally and professionally as I've prepared for coming into you today. And, and my, my, I, I think a lot, so my thinking's have gone a long way back. They've gone all the way back to my third year of psychology, which was actually probably as the crow flies, probably about a kilometre from this building that we find ourselves in. I studied here at JCU. And in my third year of psychology, I signed up for a subject which was an optional subject called health psychology. And the aim of health psychology is really to try and get some sort of understanding about what is that relationship between our physical health and our psychological makeup and how do those two things influence each other in, in either direction. And at the time when I signed up for that subject, the lecturer in that subject was the, um, the professor of psychology. So within our world, that was, that was the top person. And so to be in his class was, was not something, it was the only subject that he taught. So it was seemed, seen to be something of an esteemed thing to be sitting in his class. And he was a large man in, 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 um, in his physicality and in his, and in his ranking within the university. And so he came in on the first day and he said, I'm here to teach you health psychology. Now he didn't say it quite like that because he had a very broad Scottish accent, but I will spare you my interpretation of that. Um, and he started the lecture with the same statement that he said in every lecture for all 13 weeks that he taught us. So I'm sitting there as a, if you can imagine, a 19 year old version of me, um, sitting in the audience, sitting in the lecture theatre and he comes in and he says, everything that I'm about to tell you is wrong and then he would give his lecture and I'm glad to see that even with the masks on in the room I'm seeing a few faces going what because that's exactly what the 19 year old version of me thought every lecture he would come in and say everything I'm about to tell you is wrong and then he would proceed to give his lecture and I have to confess it took a little while for my brain to kick into gear and maybe it was my maturity or lack thereof as a 19 year old because I sat there in the room would never have said it out loud thinking then what do you like, why are you telling us stuff that's wrong? I don't want to know what's wrong. I've here, come here to learn what's right. I've come here to learn how I can apply health psychology. When I become a psychologist in two years' time, I really want to know what's right, not what's wrong. And the point that Mike was making then, Professor Ennis was making then, um, and has stuck with me through my career, is what he was saying to us was that in the field of health psychology, on that day, he was presenting to us what he knew to be true based on what he'd read in the literature, based on what he'd, he'd done in terms of his own particular research, because he did lots and lots of research in the area, the science he was presenting to us was true for that day, but not to expect for any moment that that couldn't potentially change with time. So where, what he was setting us up for was that, and that would be the reality, if, if I teach sports psychology at JCU, but if I was asked to teach health psychology there, 
next semester, what I would teach is not what Mike ta taught us, because that was 30 years ago, it was a long time ago. Um, so we know that within psychology as science, um, that what it does is the knowledge changes. And it, and it took a little while for me as an undergraduate to come to terms with that, um, because I wanted, I wanted evidence, I wanted facts, I wanted hard, concrete stuff that I could go out and apply. And so it took me a little while to work out that because humans change, and we change as generations and we change in terms of the world that we interact with. You know, I went to university when there wasn't even the internet. Um, so that long ago, can you imagine? Um, which to the horror of my son this morning when I think Facebook went down and I thought the world was gonna spin off its axis and we were gonna hurtle into the sun, but thankfully that didn't quite happen for us. So what, what we learn in psychology is that the science evolves and changes. Just like it does in our health, in our health knowledge. Um, so if you even go back to examples, if you look at how CPR training has changed over time and the recommendations around that has changed as our knowledge and our understanding and our wisdom around that has changed. If you were to be unfortunate enough to burn your hand on a stove, you know, what you would do now, which is to run it under cold water, is not what we would have done years ago when we might have put that into, into ice or even generations ago when my grandmother used to tell me about the times that they would, of course, you just put butter on a burn. So we know that for much of our science it changes and it evolves. So why do I mention all that? I mention all that because I must say that when I was invited to come and present to you this afternoon, I was a little bit anxious. Because I come out here quite often, I, I give lots of presentations in areas where I feel that I have some expertise to offer and that I feel confident around my material and I come out and I present. And then I get invited as a civilian to come into a defence environment and speak to you about ethics. And the little voice inside my head went, what have you got to tell them, Joe?" You know, like, presumably what happens as part of your defence journey is, and these, these are the assumptions I was making as I was having my little um, moment, and I was coming to terms with the fact I was coming to speak to you about this topic, was that there would be so much wisdom in this room around ethics, did I have anything extra to add? And so um, all, of that, all of that became, you know, something that I had to kind of work my way through, and I've, I've, I've talk my way through that and I'll show you in a moment what some of my strategies were to deal with that because I think they're relevant when you consider some of the questions on your scenario that you've got to, to manage over the next couple of days. But I, what I would encourage you to think about is particularly if you are someone who has sat through many presentations on ethics, and I know for many of you you have, you've, you've lived and breathed many ethical experiences, you have ethical wisdom around ethics, is to see it as much like the physical sciences and the psychological sciences as a constantly evolving conversation. And to my, to my mind, I, m part of my expectation around why does defence continue to have conversations about ethics? Well, it, my understanding is, is because it's so highly valued within the Australian Defence Force, but also because our knowledge and our understanding as the next generation of, of officers coming through to talk about ethics, you know, your contributions will change and evolve that. And so what I hope is that in presenting some ideas to you today, it'll give you some things to take away as part of your conversations to, to perhaps consider. I did actually do what, um, what probably many of my colleagues would do given the same invitation as myself. I thought, right, well, the first thing I need to do is I need to go and find out what is the one ethical framework that everyone in the Defence Force uses to apply to ethics, and I'll make sure that I know that. So I went to the Cove and I put in ethics into the search engine. 
130 fines for the last two years, I think is what I found and went, oh, crumbs, how am I gonna read all that? Because in, in addition to that, I had been briefed around the reading that I know some of you have had an opportunity to do coming into this room. Um, and that's where I guess I wanted to share with you some of my preparation. And I'll explain a little bit later on why I felt the need to do this. So in terms of preparing for today's presentation, um, I have done quite a bit of reading. Um, so what I hope to offer to you is my reflections from an ethical point of view, from my knowledge as a psychologist, um, my reflections in terms of my experience working in elite sports and some, to, that, to that matter, some of the issues and things that we see, but also just what we know about people and, and how that has an influence. What I've also been influenced by is the reading that I've done, and I've done a lot of reading in the last, in the last, um, in the last two weeks. So in terms of books, and I know I've got that on the slide and you're gonna need a magnifying glass to read it, so my apologies if that's not clear. Um, I've gone through five books in the last 10 days, um, but the one particular one that I might mention of is, is the Black Hearts book, which I hadn't come across before um, the opportunity to speak here. So I will be sharing some quotes out of the book that I think relate both in terms of sporting experiences, but then I'm wondering if maybe they might also be interesting for you to think about in terms of your discussions moving forward. So probably the main one that I would mention out of that list is, um, is Frederick's book, Black Hearts. It's I really, if you haven't come, if you haven't yet had an opportunity to read it, I would commend that, commend that book to you. So I've done some pre-reading there. I also buried myself in the cove and I read printed off articles and read articles from the cove. Um, and then I also found a really interesting um, YouTube video with um, Jim Frederick, who is the author of Black Hearts, who was interviewed, um, a, a bit of an obscure one possibly, but Concordia College, um, where it's an hour long interview with him talking about the book. So that's just to kind of give you a little bit of the background as to, as to what, what I come in with. Because I guess one of the things that I'm really aware of is there is the potential, and I would imagine this is the case, that when, when you are sitting with the expertise that you have, particularly from a defence perspective, and again, I come back to that question I asked myself, what can I offer you in terms of, of information? And one of the things I'd encourage you to do, because um, I've spent my whole career with this part of our body, the human brain, you know, it's, it's only just over a kilogram and about 15 centimetres in length, but it's a, it's a fascinating part of us because it really makes us who we are. And I, th I think that's probably one of the things that's kept me motivated and interested in a career in psychology for 30 years, is just how fascinating humans are. Um, and and if, if you think that you are logical and you think that you make every decision based on you know, the, the pros and the cons and so forth, um, I hate to be the one to tell you, but that's actually the number one fundamental human bias that we have is that we think that we're logical and sensible. So, so we'll talk a little bit about our fascinating human brains. But what I would encourage you to do as I'm presenting information to you this afternoon is to look at my information with a level of curiosity. There's a possibility, I'm hoping, that there'll be some things that I'll say that you'll go, yeah, okay, that seems reasonable. I think she's argued a case. I'll take that on board. So that, that would be great if there's some things that I say that you agree with. And then there might be some things that I say that you disagree with, either based on your experience or your knowledge. And that's good too. What I'd encourage you to do, and, and it was nice to hear in the very first presentation and in Brent's about self-reflection. Because what I know with the elite athletes I work with, part of what makes them great is their ability to self-reflect. So the teams that I work with do it and the individual athletes do as well. So if at some point I say something and you think, mm, I don't know if that's right or I disagree with that or my experiences are different to that, if the opportunity presents, please speak up. But also ask yourself the question, why are you disagreeing with me? It's fine if you are, but that will tell you a lot as well. Because sometimes we tend to disagree with people and just go, ah, it's rubbish, don't, 
that doesn't know what she's talking about and we leave it at that. But let's take it a bit deeper than that and what I would really encourage you to do is to ask those curious questions as we're going along. So I thought that I might start just by making mention of the role of ethics, particularly in sporting situations. And I'm not going to talk specifically about any of the athletes that I've worked with, but around some of the concepts. And what we know, and I think that's why it's so important to continue the conversation around ethics, is that whilst the world changes and our generations change, ethical questions are raised right throughout human experience. So if we go, if we go back, this was actually in 2000. This is the Spanish uh, basketball team that competed in the Special Olympics. Um, and they were the gold medalists. It was an outstanding achievement by them, except for one slight problem. Only two members of the team actually qualified in terms of the criteria to be considered to be an athlete in the Special Olympics. They fudged all their data. And so they had their gold, I know, they had their gold medals taken away from them and um, was considered, considered to be one of the great scandals within the sporting world. We also have Danny Almonte, and I don't know if Danny Almonte is someone that you've heard of. He competed in Little League World Series in 2001. And his ability as a young athlete was incredible. He as a 14 year old could pitch at speeds similar to that that they were seeing with adults. It was incredible. He was considered to be the next, the next great thing, the next great athlete. Um, and as a 14, uh, sorry, as a, as, a 12, as a 12 year old, I've spoiled my own story here. As a 12 year old, it was incredible because he wasn't 12, he was 14 and you had to be 12 in the league. How did he get into the league? That both of his parents, even though they were separated, had both agreed and forged his birth certificates for the opportunity for him to compete in that. So we, we see um, ethical challenges and ethical issues in many different places. This is Rosa Ruiz Vivas, and I don't know if you know her story from the Boston Marathon in 1980. Now when she ran and competed in the Boston Marathon in 1980, it was only her second ever marathon. Incredible performance. She improved her time by 20 minutes. And for the runners in the room will know that that's a pretty impressive feat when you're running a marathon. The gold medalist, or was she? So what ha actually happened to Rose's story, and there are a few conflicting stories around what happens, but the essence of it goes something like this. At about the 10, 10K mark, she sustained an injury, an ankle injury, and pulled herself off the, off the field, out, out, off the road there. She then caught a subway, chatted to someone on the subway, that was part of a downfall I think, then found herself back in the crowd and thought, oh well I'm here now, I might as well finish. Though she hadn't scanned the field all that well, so she put herself back onto the course and she finished, not knowing she was the first female to cross the line and was crowned the winner, and then took the glory. So until she was found out much later when they started to speculate that she hadn't been seen at many of the checkpoints. So we see so many instances of um, people unfortunately not, do it, not doing the right thing. So those are some historical examples and of course you don't have to look too far sadly to see other ethical challenges that we see in the sporting world. I, I cast my mind back over the weekend and thought, you know, have we seen anything recently? And I'm not going to talk to the specific athletes other than one, but we've seen, if you, if you are a, a fan of the back page, you'll see, well, actually often these stories, and that's what I always used to say to athletes, is you don't want to be on the front page unless, say, you're from Penrith and you're holding a championship trophy today. You know, other than that, keep yourself to the back page. But, you know, we see, we see athletes who, who, um, who take um, performance-enhancing drugs, whether they say that they took that themselves or somehow they took that by accident. Um, ball tampering in cricket is something that's been discussed at many different levels and of course there's been a 
very famous incident of that in Australia. Um, this was recently in the news, I won't go too much to that. And did anyone see the cricket three days ago where, where the Indian um, batter actually walked? And the reaction of the um, commentators was such, this was a really surprising thing to happen. So this used to be something that used to happen a lot in cricket, that if a, a batter knew that they were out, whether it was called or not, that, that out of the dignity to the game, that they, would, they would sem themselves would walk. And um, now I did have to write her name down. So Poonam Rao. And she, so she walked. And it's interesting that people are still talking about that, about making that decision and would you do that and how, how is that actually viewed by her team? So a whole range of areas where um, within sport we see many ethical challenges. And I guess I've, I've witnessed many of those in my career because I have been fortunate to work with elite athletes. Um, and so from time to time there, there are you know, specific things that have happened to athletes that I've worked with. But also for me as a professional, that there's been times when I've been challenged ethically in terms of things that I've needed to do or not needed to do, sometimes those difficult conversations, uh, those difficult decisions that you might make. So much so that actually two years ago, um, I, I made the decision to, uh, and I need to get, make sure the, the terminology is clear, I surrendered my registration as a psychologist. So I was a psychologist up until two years ago, uh, 28 years I was working as a psychologist, and then the, the details of it don't matter too much other than I surrendered it, I wasn't deregistered, so I'm just trying to be really clear with that, is that I wrote a book and I had a forward of my book that was written by someone and within the ethics of psychology that would be deemed to be somewhat problematic if I was to continue and to, and to do that. So for that decision I made the ethical decision to step away from the profession. So, so we see ethical challenges that are, are placed to us quite often. So what I wanted to do today is to talk to you and speak into a few, a few topics and I am going to give you an opportunity in a moment if you, if you have some questions to ask as well. I'm conscious of keeping myself on time. But I want us to talk a little bit about the way that we think. I want us to talk a little bit about the way that you lead and how you lead others and that, that will be useful in terms of I think some of the points that were made by Brent in his presentation um, and also tomorrow. Um, with, uh, with Claudia Brassard, who's coming to speak to you, who is coach of the fire. Um, and so uh, making some comments about uh, what happens when you lead, but also about what happens when you're led. What happens when you are um, having that leadership uh, experience. And I think it was interesting hearing some of Brent's comments about what is it like when you have to, if you find yourself in a situation where you want to debate a decision with, with a cap, in his case, with a, a coach or with a captain, but what also happens when you are challenged. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Talk about confidence and trust, and then I'll pose a question at the end about what makes good people do bad things. So that's, that's where I'm hoping that we, will, that we will go to today. All right, so from the Temple of Apollo in Delphi was allegedly uh, inscribed this, which may not mean so much to us, other than it means nothi seton, which is to know thyself. So that's a little bit, I think, I think that taps in really nicely with what was being presented with those initial videos from the Cove this morning about self-reflection. Um, and if I can add my opinion to that as well, is that, is that self-reflection, I think, is a really powerful tool that you can use for yourself and with those that you lead because it gives you that wisdom then to potentially change things or to make differences. So I do, I would, I would also say, as has been the theme I guess through today, is that the more that you can do to, if you like, uh, the phrase I often use is to sort of hold up the mirror to yourself and to reflect on 
your actions, to reflect on the way that you think, to reflect on the way that you're feeling. You know, Brent's comment about his management of injury, I think was a really telling one, because what he did was he, he, he clearly didn't enjoy being injured, but he'd experienced many of them. And so what he was able to say is, I accepted the emotion for what it was. Sometimes when we fight our emotions or pretend we're not feeling them, that often doesn't serve us well. So to accept our emotions and just go, well, you know, if I've been through something disappointing like a, like a substantial injury, such as he, he described, then there's going to be some, some emotions with that that are going to be strong and they're going to be unpleasant and accepting that experience. I'm interested in that because my PhD topic was actually in psychological predictors of injury in elite rugby league. So I actually looked at are there psychological elements that contribute or potentially influence the risk of a, of a player getting injured. Um, and we can maybe talk about that in the break if you're interested in that, because there were a couple of variables there that make, make, made athletes more vulnerable to injury. So that whole relationship between the mental space and the injury space, I think, is a very interesting one. So I think for all of us as professionals, that when we know ourselves, um, that gives us information, it gives us data, and then that helps us when we are doing something like you're about to do in terms of um, those specific questions around um, the ethical challenge and the scenario that you're dealing with. It helps you to inform your, your choices and your, your recommendations around that. So, so this notion of know thyself um, has certainly been around for a long time. And, we've, and, and if you look through the writings of Plato and Socrates and, and more famous poets, I did actually on a random, I took myself down a rabbit hole yesterday, I thought, oh, I wonder if anyone from The Simpsons has ever said this, because then it'll really have some credibility. But then I thought, I couldn't find it. Like I went, Homer, know thyself, nothing. Bart Simpson, know thyself. So it seems that no one in The Simpsons ever said that, that you should know thyself. But I think probably in terms of the messaging that we get from The Simpsons, that's probably not, not surprising, because I'm sure Homer would have, have some views about how ridiculous it would be to know, know thyself. So, so perhaps we, could, we were not going to find the information there. So. Part of, a big part of what I want to encourage us to think about is how do we think, that self-reflection. Because we know that as humans, and Brent talked about it well when he talked about um, not wanting to play footy. You know, when he's saying about sitting on the bus and just going, oh, I can't believe I have to do this today. And, and what he talked about was that he struggled with changing his self-dialogue to get him to a place where he'd want to play. And so the recommendation made by the psychologist that he worked with is a strategy that we often use, which is called sometimes, sometimes if the self-talk, it's challenging to shift it, you, what you do is you shift it by changing your behavior. So it's that notion to behave your way to success. Sometimes we can think our way to success, and that works. Like, would some of you find that if you were kind of, I don't know, not feeling motivated to do something, you could talk your way around it? Like, you know when you don't feel like going to the gym, and you go, oh, I don't feel like going to the gym. But then you go, actually, but it'll be good. And when I go to the gym, then I'll feel, I know I'll feel better. You're like, right now I don't feel like going, but seven o'clock Jo is gonna feel awesome if she's gone to the gym today. You know, so you can kind of talk yourself through it. You can motivate yourself, you can lift yourself. So sometimes you can change your self-dialogue in a way to increase your motivation and get yourself to do things. The strategy that Brent talked about was that sometimes, you know, you hear yourself say it and you go, nah, I still don't feel like going. So in that case, what you do is you put your shoes on, you put your gym clothes on, and you go anyway. And what I've done to myself sometimes is go, okay, all I have to do is walk in the door. I'll walk in the door, and if I still don't feel like doing it by the time I get there, then I can turn around and get back into the car. 
And invariably what happens for me is by the time I get myself into the place and I hear the music and so forth, then, then I'm on my way. So Brent talked about that strategy as well. So whatever we know about ourselves and the way we think can be really, can be really useful. Uh, let's have a little bit of a look at some things that influence the way we think. And I'm hoping that particularly this slide here would be something you might consider in your groups discussing in relation to, um, I think, question three on the back of the scenario, if I'm really pointing you in the direction of where I think that it ha potentially has some place. So let's have a look about the way you think and what you think. So we might be aware that we have knowledge. There's things that each one of us here in this room have some wisdom about. We have, we have knowledge about, about particular things, yes or no. And then there's do we have awareness that we have the knowledge? Okay, so just stick with me on this. I promise I'll bring it down to something really practical for you. So, so we all have knowledge, all of us in this room have knowledge around a whole range of different topics and experiences and things. And we may or may not have awareness about that knowledge, yes or no. So where this puts us in is potentially four quadrants. And these can be really useful. And I must say that for me, as an ethical tool, I often use this in my own professional practice, and I have since, and I was taught this the year after health psychology, I was with someone else who never told me stuff was wrong, and that was Mike, Mike Smithson, and he talked about this, this particular concept. So when we're knowledgeable and we know it, surprise, surprise, that, that can be considered to be our knowledge, yeah? So I'm gonna give you an example. So knowledge for me, something that I know about and I know I know it, is I know that I know stuff about forming habits, which was why I was so glad to hear Brent talk about it. So if someone comes to me and says, Joe, I want to be better at what I do, but I don't drink enough water and I watch too much Netflix and I um, eat rubbish too often, can you help me change it? I'll say to them, yes, because you won't always have willpower so what you need to have is habits. Habits are great. Habits are our success on autopilot. Habits are, so, I, so I know how to help people create habits. I know why they're important. I have strategies that will enable people to do it. And I know that I know it. And at the risk of me just having big noted myself there, we want to know the stuff we know, don't we? So because then potentially if someone says, oh, I wish I knew someone that could help me with habits, I can go, I can help you with habits. And I genuinely know that I can because I've read about it, I'm informed about it, I've helped people with it, and they've said, hey, Joe, thanks for helping me with that habit. So I kind of had feedback to say that I can do it. Yeah? So there's one thing that I know that I know. Now it's your turn. Have a moment to reflect. Think about something, and maybe, maybe make it something work-related. But what's something that you know quite a bit about? You've got some expertise around it, and you know you know it. And then I'm going to see if we've maybe even got two or three incredibly brave humans in the room that even want to put up their hand and go, this is the thing that I know that I know. Yeah? Did that make sense? Yes. It's very hard to tell without, with all the masks on. I'm not picking up on any of the facial stuff I normally would. You're all going, I'm going to hide behind this mask and hope she doesn't point at me. I know that. But I, I won't do that. Have a moment to think and reflect. Maybe write it down. What is the thing that you know that you know?
Okay, before I ask, because you don't have to volunteer, but first of all, was everyone able to come up with something? I would hope so in a room of intelligent humans such as this. Um, okay, that's great. Is anyone feeling brave? Does anyone want to share with the room what they know that they know? Yes, thank you. Right, so, well, I couldn't even repeat that. Normally I repeat back really good answers, but there you've just shown, shared with us the speed of light. Thank you. And I don't know, I see, I don't know that exact answer, so I don't even know if you're right or not, so I'm just going to assume that you are. Okay. <laughs> I hope you're right, so thank you. Down the back. Oh, uh, yeah, work-related, just a dismount of behaviours and tactics. Yes, okay. And out of curiosity, how do you know that you know that? Okay, great. So somewhere along the way you've got feedback on what you've done and, and you, yeah, great, awesome. Because I think that's one of the things that's useful is that potentially with the ethical scenario that you've got to consider, I would imagine part of it is going, well, what do we know? And a really informed answer will be, how do you know that you know it? You know, so it's one thing to know it, but it's another thing to know how it is that you know it. Anyone else want to give us an example? Thank you. Uh, I know that I know uh, how to command and use the mortar capability in the infantry battalion. Okay. Um, I know that because I've lived that through about five years in the platoon itself. And I've also had the opportunity to instruct on courses at the basic level and then the more advanced level. Um, and at the moment, those personnel that I have Great, thank you. A very, a very comprehensive answer there. And that knowing what we know is is incredibly useful for us. Um, and would you agree that it it would be beneficial in your in your work environment for you to know what you know? Yeah, because presumably that's what you're going to lean towards doing the things that you know that you know, and and that's going to be very helpful for you in terms of in terms of success. And particularly in other activities, and I don't, I have to say this is where one of those instances where I don't know the exact mechanics around how it actually happens, but I would imagine that if you're going for a promotion or when I, when I work with people in job interviews, you know, if you're going to go into a job interview and do that successfully, you have to know what you know because they're going to ask you. So this, this, the ability to reflect on what do I know is really helpful throughout your career, throughout your life, I would suggest, but also when you are considering ethical challenges. What do I know that I know? So that's, that's the first element of that. The second one, now this one's a, a doozy as well. I don't know something, but I know that I don't know it. Now I've often said when I, te I do teach ethics, I did, sorry, I used to teach ethics when I worked in the Department of Psychology at JCU, I now work in sports science. But when I was in psychology, I used to teach in the ethics subject. And I would often say to those students, one of the greatest skills you can have, particularly as a new graduate, is to know what it is that you do not know. So I'll give you my example. So if we took the, um, the condition of schizophrenia. Okay, so schizophrenia. So if someone, if I was back in my clinical days and someone came in presenting with, uh, um, behaviours and thoughts that were consistent with schizophrenia, I'm pretty sure I could work that much out. Like I know, that's about how much I know about schizophrenia. Schizophrenia is a highly specialised field and, and should be managed by people with expertise in it. I know I'm not that person. 
How beneficial is that? Because I tell you what, if you've got schizophrenia, don't come and talk to me, I can't help you. The wisdom for me to know that I don't know, that I know enough to go, oh, I think that looks like something I don't know anything about. Okay, let me help refer this person on and get them the help that they need. So there is great wisdom in knowing what it is you do not know. How might that be useful? I don't, I don't want to spin that one around on you necessarily to say, now everyone tell me something that you know that you do not know, although I would like you to consider that. How do you envisage that that might be helpful moving forward with the ethical scenarios that you're going to deal with? And we don't need to look necessarily at the detail of the scenario, but what, how might that be useful in your conversations within your smaller teams that you're working on this with? Down the back. You know what your gaps in knowledge are and what kind of questions you might ask the team around you for them to inform those gaps? Yes. Yeah. So there's a great... And does that take a bit of courage to share, hey, I don't know... See, see, see how, what a safe example I went with? See what I did there? I went, oh, I'll tell them something I don't know because they wouldn't expect me to know anything about that. So there was no real bravery in what I shared there. Um, so... What I also did, though, I shared earlier in the presentation was I said to you, I'm not really sure what the framework is that defence uses to consider ethical scenarios. That felt a little bit braver. And part of the reason I hid behind that bravery was I showed you all the things I'd read. So it was like, see, I have done some reading, but I, don't, I know I don't know it all. So, so knowing, being courageous enough in your groups to say, I think we need to know something about this, but I'm not the person for that, takes some courage. So you need to be in an environment that's safe to do that. And, and reflecting back on Brent's presentation from earlier, wasn't that what he told us was one of the things that he really received? There were so many things he said he respected about Wayne Bennett, but one of them was his, about his ability to not always have to be the expert in the room. Yeah? So my equivalent coach that I've worked with who has that same skill set that Brent described about, about um, Wayne was... Uh, so you're meeting Claudia tomorrow who was... Um, two coaches ago for the fire, and Claudia is a, is a fa was a fantastic coach. Um, she has a wonderful professional background, and she was assistant coach to Chris Lucas, who was our coach for, for many years, and when I first um, joined up with the fire, I worked with Chris. Um, and one of the things I really respected about Chris as a coach and continue to respect about him is he does not feel that he always needs to be the expert in the room. He has enough confidence in himself and enough courage within himself that he's prepared to surround himself with experts to give him the gaps that he doesn't have. Now, that being said, he knows a lot about basketball. And I've yet to meet anyone that doesn't know more about particularly defensive plays in basketball than Chris. Like, he's amazing with that. Chris seems to have this ability to take, you know, the team that you go, oh, gosh, they're not going to do very well this season, and then somehow get them into semifinals, you know. So he's got that ability, which is a lot about his player management as well. But one of the things I've always respected working with Chris, so we used to, and for those of you, I know there's a broader audience, but for those of you here in towns will probably know the Spirit of Hope, not too far away from here, which is a coffee shop. So Chris and I used to go there every Monday lunchtime and have lunch after a game. And he would say, what did you think, Joe? And he would want my reflections on what I saw in the game and what I might be able to potentially add. And there were times he was brave enough in his own ability that I could say to him, hey, Chris, Noticed in the change rooms when you gave your address and you didn't look at such and such player, I think a game dropped. I think what you need to do with her is to make sure you make eye contact with her in the halftime break or something like that. And you go, good point, thanks. Okay, all right, I'll try that. So he had enough courage within himself to say, I will take your expert advice and take that on board. And then there'd be other times where he'd go, 
no to Joe, not doing it. Not, not about that example, because that example he did do it, but you know, it wasn't he took on board everything I said, because he's still in charge, he's still you know, the coach of the team, but he knew what he didn't know. And I think that that potentially would be something when you have the opportunity to reflect on an ethical scenario in front of you, as best you can, the ability to be able to go, what don't I know here? Like, what, you know, I've got inklings about things, I've got some wisdom about things, but where are the gaps for me and where do they sit when you have the opportunity to reflect on that? I think that's a really valuable point. All right, so then we also have uninformed knowledge. So this is where, and tell me if you've ever come across this scenario where apparently you know stuff, but you think that you don't. Has anyone ever, it's a bit of an abstract concept because some people would go, well, you would, if you knew that you knew it, you wouldn't think that you would have the awareness. Um, but has anyone ever had, and I guess you would probably know this if someone said to you, hey, Joe, do you want to come and give a presentation on ethics for our Cove conference? Because this is the territory that I found myself in panicking about the other week. That's why, you know that reading list I showed you before? That was not to impress you. That was to remind myself I'd done some work in preparation for this. Now I will find out in about, in about 50 minutes time whether or not I do have knowledge in this because you'll all give me some feedback and let me know. But when I got wobbly about this, when I thought, I don't know if I've got something to say in this forum, clearly some people had some faith in me because they invited me along to come and present. And I do know some stuff in this area, but I was really worried that your understandings of ethics would mean that I may not have as much to contribute. So this one, this space, is where you know stuff, but you doubt yourself. So what I would suggest is with curiosity is if people ever say to you, yeah, but you, you're good at that stuff. You know how to do that. Before you just sit and go, no, I don't. Be curious about that. Maybe you know more about it than you think that you do. And that, that, it's, a, it's a tricky place to find yourself in, but it's, it's a thing that we're often, we often get quite dismissive. We go, no, I don't think I do, therefore I don't. But it may actually be that we don't have that, we haven't reflected on it sufficiently or we haven't tested it out enough or we haven't stepped up and been brave enough about it to really work out whether or not we have that knowledge. And then we have this place where we don't have the knowledge and we don't know that we don't have the knowledge. So this is, this is potentially a dangerous place too, isn't it? We don't know that we don't know it and we don't know that we don't know it. So this is where we kind of like, we think that we know it and we don't. And I would imagine that, and there were plenty of examples actually in, um, in Black Hearts where there were examples of this that were being described. There was one particular scenario where I wrote it down, because it this is the one I don't have a slide on. It was, it was in chapter 12, and it was where the unit had, they had been out for about 18 hours, and then the mission changed while they were out, and they, were, they had to drive up and down the road for about I wrote it down, I think it was, it was 18 hours, then they had to drive up and down the road for eight, eight hours to test for IEDs because there were some dignitaries coming through the next day and didn't want to blow up the dignitaries, so they sent this, so they were out, I know, so they were out for eight hours doing that and just when they were coming back and they'd been promised a feed and a rest and all the rest of it, um, by then I think morning had come around and the dignitaries were there, so the dignitaries had to be drove around. So by the time they finally actually came back in, they had been out for 50 hours, 50 hours of driving around, 
constantly worrying about what was going to happen to them. And so there was, you, you, I, can't, I can't imagine what that would be, but I, I tried to as I was reading it. And the bit that got me the most after I read that, and they talked about coming back in, and whoever was sat in the front with the driver just had, kept having to prod him every 30 seconds because they were all falling, they were all falling asleep. So I, can only, I can't even imagine the fatigue that goes with that. And then they walked back into camp and they were greeted by someone who said, when was the last time you shaved? And it was the probably, aside from, aside from the major incident that's obviously described in the book, it was the one time I was reading, I was on the couch and I went, you're kidding me. And my husband went, what? And I just went, to me, what I was reading from that person who asked that comment was they just didn't get it at all. And they didn't know that they didn't get it. They didn't have the empathy to understand. Now, was that what was happening for them? I don't know. But that was my read of it when I was reading through that. So you might have inklings for yourself on this. And again, this is probably going to start with external feedback from others. Sometimes it's other people or it's evidence in front of us, like we make a mistake that leads us to understand that we don't know something and we didn't know we didn't know it. I tested this last night. I thought I better test it. I better come up with an example for this one. So my husband was in Brisbane yesterday. So I rang him last night about eight o'clock. Had a chat about stuff. It wasn't the first thing I asked him, but I said, hey, what's something that, I need to ask you something. I need, some, I need an example. What's, what's something that I think I know and you know I don't know it? And he went, what? I said, well, what's something, you know, you know, you, you, he's known me for 35 years. Um, what's something that I know, but you know I don't know it? He went, uh-uh. <laughs> he said, I'm not, he said, this is a trap, isn't it? He said, are you, what, are you looking for an argument? I went, no, 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 I genuinely want to know. He goes, no, you don't. And I said, yeah, I do. And he goes, you don't want to know that because then you're going to throw it back at me and then you're going to stand, stand there and argue with me while you do know it because I'm going to tell you that you don't. And I went... Oh, okay, all right. So anyway, finished the conversation. We're already so I don't have any knowledge. So then this morning I thought, I'm going to have one more crack at this. So sitting at my kitchen bench was my 15-year-old. I said, mate, before you go to school today, what's something that mum thinks she knows, but you know she doesn't know it? And he leans forward and he goes, where will we start? <laughs> and I went, oh. And he goes, shall we start with your profile. He said, you think you know how to run Instagram? You don't. I went, there's nothing wrong with my Instagram profile. He goes, see? And so, and then, and then I said, okay, you can stop now. You can stop now. So, so again, now those are innocuous examples. You know, if I have a horrible Instagram profile, it does not matter. But in terms of your line of work, if you don't know something and you don't know you don't know it, then that can place you in a very challenging place as well. That's where we think we have expertise when we don't. And so sometimes it's relying on feedback, seeking feedback and so forth to, to consider that. So that's a fair bit of talking from me about that slide. And what I wanted to do as part of that discussion is to really get you thinking about what does that look like? Because otherwise it just becomes a theoretical thing I, I put up on, the, up on the screen for you. Are there any comments, questions, observations that anyone wanted to make on that? Be very welcome to. No. Don't ask your 15 year old is one, one take home from that. Okay. All right, so, so the take home from this in terms of the scenario that you're facing, but also beyond the scenario and what you might, might think of outside of this particular conference is to be aware that when it comes to what we know, you know, there's things we know, there's things we don't know, and our awareness about that knowledge is a really critical part of the piece. 
I think it's really important for you as a professional and you can do it through the reflective journaling and you can do it through um, just general self-reflection. You know, know what it is that you know. Your wisdom is, and I know that we sometimes, maybe there might be some um, Australian societal norms that tell us that we shouldn't say what we know that we know and we'll be, you know, tall copies and all the rest of it. But it really is important for you to know your skill set, know what your strengths are and to have that awareness. It's really important to know where the gaps are so that you can either build on them or you can bring in expertise to assist you with those when you, when you experience them. And then of course also, there be, you know, every expert was once a beginner. So maybe you are beginning to develop expertise in an area and you haven't quite um, defined what that is. Brent talked a lot about mindset and that mindset piece is so critical for us in terms of our professional knowledge and, and confidence. And then of course, this piece here, your uninformed ignorance and my best recommendation, as I said, is to uh, reflect with a 15-year-old or there might, be, there might be other tools that you might have about that. But, but certainly that's, that's often maybe perhaps part of your role as leaders is sometimes you're giving that feedback, aren't you? You've got to you know, sit someone down and say, look, I know that this is your understanding of the situation, but that's not the way that it is. So how you deliver that feedback is going to be incredibly important. Okay. So I, I think that's probably a useful thing to take into the consideration of the scenarios. One of the other things that I think is important, um, and if you like this slide, I actually have these as little laminated cards as well. I've got enough for everyone. So if you would like one of these at the end, then I'll, I'll hand those out as well. Is I think this, what this diagram does very simply is it differentiates between when, we're, when we face a situation, whatever that situation might be, we typically will go down one of two paths. Sometimes we react in a situation and other times we respond in a situation. So, um, and I was presenting on this recently and, and, and when I gave people the opportunity to look at the slides, so if we have a look at the reaction, that, that's when we have an event and then, and then immediately there is some sort of reaction to it. And then other times we can respond and so we have the event where there is some sort of momentary pause, whatever that might be, and then we respond to the situation. And I often give the example, you know, and it, it, we, I hear more of it here in Australia now, but particularly in the US, you hear it a lot if you're traveling in the States, where when you describe someone who is from police or from ambulance or from fire brigade, they're often referred to collectively as first responders. And that's why they're not referred to as first reactors, because what you want is in a point of crisis, you want people to come in and to respond to the situation. And someone said to me, Joe, are you saying that reacting to stuff is bad? I don't typically ever label anything as sort of good or bad anyway. Um, so that wasn't what I was trying to, in, trying to suggest. Tell me, I'll ask you the question, when is it useful to react? Give it very little thought, just react. When you're getting shot at, yeah, that would be that would would have been my guess, and I'm glad that that's a correct answer. And sorry, I think there was another one over here, but it might have been similar. Potentially, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's well, it's a common reaction, isn't it? So, so we know that, and and if we and if we take a domestic, so we've got the the example that that you would have obviously in a deployment situation, but also. Let's, we, don't even have, we don't even have to leave our kitchen, do we? If you were, if I'd been talking to my 15 year old this morning as I was, and let's just say I'd momentarily got slightly distracted by his um, awesome feedback, and I'd leant straight onto the hot plate. 
we really don't need Joe to stop, pause, think about it, wonder what's going on and then remove a hand, do we? So there are plenty of instances where a reaction is entirely appropriate. And particularly in relation again to your, some of your expertise, the reason why you practice the things that you do so often, it's a bit like Brent in terms of tackling in rugby league or in basketball or in whichever sport that it might be, you know, those athletes need to react very quickly in most situations, in many of those situations. When does a reaction work against us though? When, like, is, because, and I guess that's where I was leading to, is that not all reactions are helpful. What would be an unhelpful reaction? Right, yes. And, and if your wife was here telling us that scenario, she, maybe she might say to us, he'd said that to me and I didn't even think, I just sprayed him again. So. Response, <laughs> she probably had pre-planned and she'd pre-planned your reaction as well potentially yeah so that's one of the thank you for that because one of the examples that I often hear from people is that at times sometimes the reactions that would have been better as a response is when we end up with regret following the situation is that sometimes our reactions and so um, if I could take to your point, and I know there's going to be lots of different scenarios around this, but sometimes when someone punches you in the face, it may not serve you well to punch them back. You know, so I'll, that's probably a debatable point. You're going to tell me it depends on context and so forth. But certainly in, in football, and I have, I, I have two sons who are referees in touch football, and they are dealing with reactions all the time. And so they have to be very mindful of their own behaviour to make sure as referees and officials that they, as best they can, respond to situations rather than react to the situation. So there, there will be time and place with all of them. Tell me in your work, then, examples of when, it, when a response would be preferable to a reaction. Deliberate, have time to think about the situation. Yeah, so and you do often need that little bit of a, and it might just be a split second, mightn't it, but it does take there's an extra element in here, so it's going to take that little bit more time. So when there is some degree of luxury of time, whether it be this scenario that you're working on, that you have the luxury of a couple of days to respond to the questions and to think about it and to consider it, rather than if you've been presented with it and immediately, what, what's your answer? You know, which would be more of that reaction phase. So this pause here is potentially what's helpful. Yes. I think uh, it's sometimes used uh, frequently in AARs and stuff like that that we have where we take a tactical pause uh, before we uh, respond or, yeah, there we go. So yeah. before we respond, so let the situation develop and then uh, during that pause you're more informed and then you can uh, have a better outcome uh, or a better action uh, instead of just an immediate action or reaction um, to the yeah. situation. Yeah, thank you. And before you put mask back on, can I, can I ask you further then, and you, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but uh, someone else might help, help out. What do you do in that pause? Like, what's uh, happening there? Consider, take in, uh, and sometimes, uh, you know, converse with your offside or someone who might be thinking something else uh, at the same time, um, have a better uh, outcome. Yeah, so a range of options there. Anything that anyone would want to add? What, what else might you be doing in this, in this, I've just called it a moment of pause. Oh, look at all these hands, awesome. 
Uh, one of the things that we worked on with people was finding out their own process that works for them and their system. So some people were using a system of keywords to uh, help their mental process jog along, uh, and that pre-preparation makes that pause time more effective to the response and shorten the loop a bit. Great, thank you. So, so particular keywords, or, or, and what you identified there is it's, it's individual style, isn't it? Because it would be unlikely that across this room we'd all do it the same way, and that's what you're recognising. And and hearing Brent's example before, of not wanting to go to the at the times when he didn't want to go to the game, a cognitive strategy would not have helped him. He tried the cognitive strategies that they didn't work. He needed a behavioural strategy. And it's interesting hearing Brent, and I must take this up with him next time I speak with him, is that he, you know how he said, you know, I'm, I'm not really one for goal setting. And then he said, you know, and before every single game, I would sit down, I'd look at the three things that I'm going to achieve every game and all the rest of it. And so sometimes it's interesting how we choose to view that. So um, I will mention that to him next time. Now, there were some other hands as well. What else might we do in that pause? From my perspective, it is in that pause, you're thinking of possible responses that you're going to get. And you think of the, the more viable response that you're looking for. So you then respond in a fashion to structure or perhaps um, push the responder down the path you want to. So if you want to get a group, um, a group of agreement as opposed to a group disagreement, you think of in that pause, how am I going to structure my, my input to the group to push them down the right path to get the positive reaction as opposed to a positive response as opposed to the negative response? So that's why I've used the pause for just to think of my strategy before I just say the wrong thing or I have the wrong action, which then gets a negative response to my response. Yes. So it's, it's a bit of planning around the strategy, around the outcome, depending on whatever that situation might be. Yeah, okay, great, thank you. There was one down the back, too, I think. Uh, yeah, so uh, I was thinking more about how it work, and even when we get no contact, for example, or a firefight, I think these two come in together with, we're at a dismount of two, how we react is the immediate action drill where the soldier who's discovered the threat will put down fire, and that gives me as a commander, what we call a commander's pause, which is how we respond. So this is the event, him doing the immediate reaction, gives me that pause where I can gather information and then make an informed decision to have a, a better response to whatever the threat is. Great, thank you. Was there another one? The thought process on the OODA-loop. Sorry, the... The OODA-loop. So there was, I think he was American, Bowman's correct me if I'm wrong, the boy cycle. The boy cycle observatory in the side act. It's a... Uh, uh, decision-making tool that comes from the Korean War where uh, American aircraft are getting shot down by North Korean Chinese aircraft and uh, this guy, Colonel Boyd, comes out with the Uga Loop as uh, his saying, uh, observe, orient, decide, act. Um, so you observe something happens, you orient to the situation, you come to a decision and then you act on uh, that's a decision-making tool. Right, thank you. Thank you for that. So, and that's probably another way of doing the, that point that you raised about having having some sort of methodology that works for you in terms of decision-making perhaps around that. And it may also be the other thing that I would, I would make the observation too is that it may be that this moment, and it's going to be context dependent of course, is that it may not even be necessarily the cognitive strategy that you might need but it might be something to 
um, uh, to, to gain more personal control over your physiology as well. So you might do something like box breathing, perhaps that might be a useful strategy or whatever it is that you might use in a moment that gives you that physical or psychological pause. It could be either or it could be both that then allows you to respond in a way. Because you, you will know that if ever you walk away from a situation going, oh, I could have done that so differently, then there's, it, potentially it might be something about the relationship between these two things. And obviously what we've identified through the conversations, and thank you for your contributions around that, is that there are times for both. And, and, and again, know thyself. Know thyself in terms of how, how does this work for you? You know, do you feel like that you've got a, a balance for yourself that is helpful and works towards the outcomes? Or is this somewhere where, that you could learn to improve and, and to develop those as well? So I think there's a place for both of them. So a reminder again, I'll have them at the end, but if anyone wants a little card to stick on their computer or, or to take away with them. The other thing that I would say is that if you are looking this is, say, an area of your own professional development where you would like to grow and improve, which you most certainly could. Um, you, you might think through and reflect on how, what might be a way that I could do that when I am here, when I'm at work. But what I also encourage you to do, which is exactly the same thing that I do with athletes, and last week I was working with some, I was working, well, I was working with the Queens, Queensland women's um, origin team, the under 17 team, we have had the city country game. And what I said to them is what I would say to you is that the more that you can practice these skills outside of your workplace, the more likelihood that under moments of high pressure, you will use them in your workplace. So for those athletes who were rugby league players again, you know, city country game comes around once in their career because it's an under 18 competition for them. So they only get to do this once. So they're not gonna pull some psychological tools out of their kit bag just on game day. And so for them who are school aged, I say to them, you know, pick the subject you like least at school and practice it there. Because I can tell you what, if you can concentrate in maths or history or English or whatever is your least preferred subject, you can concentrate anywhere. You can certainly then concentrate on a field. So, so you're finding other opportunities and links to, to build on some of these things outside of maybe those high pressure moments will build up your toolkit in terms of what you'll actually be able to take in those moments of, of high pressure. Um, I wanted to uh, just reflect on two quotes that came from the Black Hearts book as well. Um, and this was from First Lieutenant Britton, and I'm hoping that the, the uh, font is large enough um, for you on, on the reading there. But just, just to read out, this is out of, and what I've done is I've referenced it according to the chapter numbers, because I know when I read this on my Kindle, um, or on my iPad, I should say, obviously the page numbers didn't line up with when I then read it in the book. So I've just gone with the chapter numbers there if you wanted to go and find it. But um, this was First Lieutenant Britt who said at one point, I just know I'm next, he told Ryben and Lousia that night. It's bad juju to be a lieutenant, he said. My number is up. They told him that you can't talk like that, that they viewed his pessimism as a significant change. He'd always been the one to tell the most depressed, fatalistic, negative soldiers to always look at the odds, even in a war zone. He would often counsel them, the numbers are always with you. Far more people come back than ever get killed and it almost always is the other guy who gets it. So they were. So this for me I thought was an interesting quote and I must say, I, I do love reading. So I did write pages of notes on this book and none of them had anything to do with this topic because I just think people are fascinating. So if there's ever a book club going on Black Hearts, please let me know, I'll come along to it. Um, but there were two particular points here that I thought are useful for you to consider in relation to decision making, particularly around ethics. Um, so the one, and I'll highlight the word there, 
here when they're talking about Brit's pessimism. So we know that mindset, as Brent was talking about earlier, is a really strong influencing factor in terms of performance. And that broadly in the, in the field of psychology, we talk about optimism versus pessimism. Now, not as discrete categories as in, you know, I'll get you to do the, there's a multitude of tests, but there's some of them, you know, are quite useful. Um, and yes, you come out optimist or pessimist. It's not that clear cut. Think of it as a continuum along, you know, if we were to draw a line across the room and that if you were to do the instrument that I could then place you along the line, which would give an indicator to on the scale of being most optimistic, if we make that your um, left side of the room versus the most optimistic versus the most pessimistic, we'd all place ourselves somewhere along there. Now, typically what we find consistently through the research is that optimism is beneficial. That when we choose to see the world through a hopeful, if you like, positive light, when we tend to expect the best, it tends to serve us well in, in the majority of disciplines. Now, what you're going to turn around to me is say, ah, clearly you haven't been on a battlefield then, Joe. You know, so, and, and what I would say, I, I would say something, what I would say to that is absolutely correct. You know, that what we know is that you can be too optimistic and in my presentations I kind of I never like to complicate things too much so I always bring it down to the two characters everyone gets which is Tigger and Eeyore you know so Tigger apart from the fact that as beautiful as he is he's very annoying if you spend a lot of time with him is that it doesn't always serve us well to be overly optimistic so you can be optimistic to a fault yes particularly in instances where there are high levels of risk so it's always going to be something that you're going to need to evaluate in terms of performance for us, in terms for Brent as a rugby league footballer, an optimistic outlook is going to be much more helpful for him in terms of performance. Um, so but what, what I would say is that obviously in moments of high risk, anything from the battlefield, um, whether it be an incoming cyclone, which is something that we're very familiar with here in North Queensland, or whether it even be something as personal as you look down and you see a mole that has changed on your hand. Those are not she'll be right you know that's not going to serve you well but when you experience disappointment someone asked the question of Brent as to you know how do you manage disappointments well you know you cop those disappointments on the chin you remind yourself that failure is not the opposite of success it's part of it it's part of the learning and then you go well what can I do next how can I how can I be better next time and uh, and I, I know as was said you don't always get that opportunity necessarily in deployment type situations, but when you are practicing and rehearsing in an environment such as this, it gives you the, the, the safety of making a mistake, but it's what you do with that mistake then that becomes important. So we do know that mindset there is an incredibly important part of, manage, of managing those particular situations. So there's that optimism, pessimism piece. And the other thing that I was going to make mention of here too, because I hear a lot of this in sports settings, um, I'll go with this. It's bad juju. If we ever come across superstitions in sport or superstitions in anything, really. Um, so, and I, I guess the balance between um, rituals and habit and do, you know, that was what Brent was talking about, was talking about, you know, I, I did lots of things the right way. I went to bed at the same time. I ate better food. I did my stretching, all things that he learned to do as he became a more professional athlete. Um, Sometimes those things can step over into superstitions and superstitions don't typically serve us well because superstitions are linkages that we make that don't necessarily 
equate. So if I'll give you a sporting example, and then if you choose to, you might want to give me a defence example. So the sporting example I will give you is a basketball player that I worked with um, after this superstition had failed him. So this particular athlete had a superstition around the ritual of putting on his shoes for a game. So clearly, basketballers need to wear shoes for games, so you've got to get them on your feet somehow. Now he'd got himself into a little routine of left sock, right sock, left shoe, right shoe, do up the left laces, do up the right laces, undo the left laces, undo, undo the right laces, and then do them back up again. I know. Um, and so, so he would he would got into this particular ritual. Now, does it hurt anyone? No. If it helps keep him calm and all the rest of it, fine. Except for the day it went pear shaped. And the day it went pear shaped was the day that he went to pull on the laces and the lace snapped in his hand. And he didn't have a backup pair of laces with him. And the other part of his ritual is he always left it till the last minute to do up his shoes. So he wouldn't have had time to relace his boots anyway. Now, we would all know that what all you would typically need to do there is kind of rejig the laces a little bit, maybe go two eyelets down and, and, you know, run out and just play with it as best you can. He played terribly because of his laces. So by the time he came to see me, he said, I, I just had this terrible game because I did my laces up terribly, which is an indication, obviously, of a superstition not working for us. So one of the things I'd also encourage you to think about is we have many rituals, we have many things that we do on autopilot, on repeat, and they are very helpful for us. And then sometimes we just make stuff up. We make linkages between things that don't exist, and then when they go pear-shaped, you know, I've just been promoted to this rank, so therefore this is gonna to happen to me, um, is probably gonna be unhelpful. The other example I will give is, um, it was long enough ago, I can speak to it now. Um, it was an assistant coach with a team that I had worked with, who the team hadn't been going particularly well, and then they had a win in their, in their home environment. And everyone was excited and all the rest of it. And so what happens in the home environment is that you obviously can get changed in your home change rooms. So what this assistant coach did was they took their shirt off, took their shorts off, you know, jumped into the showers, threw their clothes in their locker, locked up the locker, went on their way, you know, got changed and all the rest of it. Forgot their clothes were in the locker. Left them there for the week. So you can imagine what they smelt like a week later. But then the game came along at home again, as that would happen. As it happened, they had three games at home. And the, and the coach said, um, said to himself, oh, well, I wore that shirt last week. I reckon I might wear that again. Maybe that's my lucky shirt. So he put on his lucky shirt, and what do you know? They won. What do you think he decided to do next with his shirt? Put it back in the locker and not wash it. So then the third game won again. By now, shirt really stinks. And of course, you can imagine, and again, it's, it's one of those, this is just such a, it's a simple and somewhat silly example, except that even a coach who, who you would think would know better, we get tied into, don't we, sometimes superstitions. And we know that superstitions aren't helpful to our thinking, but they are very common things that, that we will actually experience. Uh, I might just, for the benefit of time, I'm just gonna skip one. Um, the, other, the other thing that I think is, is for us to consider as well is, is the role of bias um, in terms of our thinking. So we know as humans that we are all prone to different forms of bias. So, what, so for example, and you might be familiar with some of these, we have one particular type of bias which is called the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error. And what tends to happen with the fundamental attribution error is a tendency, and this one will be a useful one for you to have, is that it's a tendency for us 
that when we are explaining the when we're explaining behaviours, we tend to think that other people behave because it says something about them. It's something about their particular personality characteristics that means that they are more likely to do this particular behaviour. So when I so if you see someone um, throw litter in the street, then you would you would blame that on something about them and their personality rather than the fact that there were no bins on the street, say. So you'd be less likely to blame it on the context. So we know that we are more likely to blame others for in terms of their personality. We're more likely to attribute blame to ourselves because of the circumstances that we're in. Well, I only threw that rubbish because there were no bins around. It's not because I'm that kind of person. So we know that for humans that we are, there are many biases that we are potentially prone to. And the other thing that, we're, that we have a tendency towards as well is this thing called cognitive dissonance. And cognitive dissonance is when, and we've all probably encountered situations of this, cognitive dissonance is what happens when I have a belief and then I behave inconsistently with the belief. Does that make sense? Let's so go with another example that I've given in presentations before. So I might have a belief that we should minimise our use of plastics and we should you know, recycle wherever we can and try not to put too many plastics back out into the environment because it's bad for the environment, bad for the turtles, say. So that's a view that probably many people would have. I wouldn't be the only one that has it. In my laundry, I currently have, and I know this for a fact, I was in there this morning, in my laundry at the moment, on top of my front-loading washing machine, I have two large things of dynamo, I think it's dynamo, big, you know those big plastic ones, the big heavy things, two of them sitting on top of my washing machine. Now, is that consistent with my beliefs and my values of what I'm saying about in terms of the environment? It's not, is it? And it gets worse because if you open the cupboard down next to the washing machine, there's another five in there. So here's what happens. Joe has a belief about the environment and then her behaviour is completely inconsistent. So one of two things has to happen because what typically happens for most people through this notion of cognitive dissonance is we don't manage that so well. That makes me, it's like a psychological rub. It makes me feel uncomfortable in my bones that I say this but I do this. So one of two things has to happen. I either have to change my behaviours to make them consistent with my values, which would mean, and I know there are much better, whenever I give this example, someone always comes up and goes, you know, there's a much better system you could be do, doing, Joe. So, you know, I could change my behaviour so I'm using less plastics. That's one thing that I could do. Or, and this is what I did the first time that I did it, which is why there's now seven things of plastic in my laundry, is that we change our explanations to match our inconsistent behaviour. Because you know why I have seven things of that, that whatever it is, robot? It's dynamite, I don't know what it is. You know why I've got seven of those there? They were half price. Do you know how expensive that stuff is? They're like 20 bucks a pop and I found them for 10. And they're on the shelf anyway, so someone's going to buy them. So it may as well be me and then after this I won't buy any more. See what I'm doing? I'm rationalising my behaviour to fit in with the fact that my behaviour was inconsistent with my values. So again, it's one of the things to look out for, particularly in ethical dilemmas, is that our values and our behaviours don't always match up. So we sometimes, you know, we sometimes we, we manipulate the thinking because that's much easier than not buying the detergent. Therein lies the challenge. So that's, that's something else for you to think about. All right, Aya. So I wanted to just make a couple of comments about leadership. And you're going to have Claudia's wisdom with you tomorrow 
Um, but this was a quote, and this really fits in with what um, Brent was saying about Wayne Bennett um, this morning. When he, and this is, the, this is the quote from chapter four out of Black Hearts, where it says, a hard charger and a demanding boss, Blaisdell had formidably high standards, yet a surprisingly warm disp disposition with his men. There was something about the way he operated that made even privates feel important. People did what he said, not just because it was an order, but because they wanted to please him. And that's what, did you hear Brent say that? He said, I would have done anything for him. And it was interesting, and I know not everyone was a fan of the game on the weekend, but I've got this slide for you anyway. Um, that's exactly what Benji Marshall said on, in Saturday's paper. When it talked about his, and, and I was sitting there going, it's like Brent read my presentation. Um, and you can't, obviously can't read all of that there, but a key quote that you can read just across my shoulder there, it talks about his relationship with his coach. So um, there's no doubt that I've seen great coaches make tough decisions, but it's the intent that comes behind it that will, will depend, determine whether or not you take your, your, um, your team with you or not. So we know that that's an incredibly important part of it. I talked about Claudia. Claudia is interesting to, when you speak here from her tomorrow because she has the leadership as a sporting coach, but also within her, within her own profession where she's regarded within that. Um, and she, I'll let her speak to that. But it's interesting seeing her leadership and Chris's leadership that I, I talked about as well, because those are examples of great coaches that take, in their case, their athletes along for the journey. And when, you, when you're doing that and the intention is well understood, then you can deliver some of even the hardest messages, I think. Um, just, I just want to see just very quickly, were there any thoughts or comments around that about what are some of the challenges or would this be consistent with your experiences? When you think about those who have led you, and you would have had lots of examples of different leadership through the course of your career, but does this resonate with what you know? Yeah? So I found I've been doing a lot of reflection this year just for professional development within myself. So I found that like the way I communicate with my soldiers, um, it comes down to the way they learn. So like if one's a portable learner or one's a, a visual learner, like a yellow with my feelings, I can shape the way I communicate with them to achieve the intent that's set down for me from my bosses. So it's like breaking it down to the individual. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. And that's so important, isn't it? Because there's a range of things that are going on there. First of all, you're getting to know them as people. Because, and, and can I ask, how, how have you worked that out? Because that's a timely process to do that. Yeah, exploring those possibilities. Because you're right, is that, that people do learn in different ways. We, we did exactly this, um, Claudia and I, with the fire the, the year that she was coach. Because if you think about basketball and they have a 30 second timeout, you've got 30 seconds to get five people all on your train of thought to communicate information whilst they're huffing and puffing because they've just come off the court and you've got to get that information to them. And some people process information in different ways. Part of the reason why you have handouts in front of you is because, this has made it all about me, um, because if I was sitting in this presentation and I, you, I didn't have a notepad with me and I had no notes and it wouldn't matter what song and dance happened up the front, I would walk out of here like Dory. So your, your learning style has nothing to do with your intelligence, but if I hear stuff and it, you know, describe to me how to get somewhere on base I haven't been before, and if you just give me verbal instructions, 
I'm going to find it very difficult to process that. So that's what you're talking about in that particular example is different people might respond in different ways. Uh, we were over in Malaysia earlier in the year and we were part of a program, uh, Mental Fitness ARs is one of the activities that we were doing. And it basically took the normal ARs when someone makes a mistake or could do something better, we talked about what they need to do. And this gave insight into the thought processes, cognitive skills and, and things like that. But one of the biggest benefits we found is that guys had a better understanding of what their, their team was thinking when they did certain actions and gave them a better understanding of how they could implement the right skills to improve their performance. And that kind of speaks to the report we were saying. And also, I think, engendered a greater deal of trust and understanding between the team members and, and their commanders. So that was a very interesting uh, program at Apollo. Not everyone really liked it, but um, it did have some pretty tangible results. Yeah, great. And, and it sounds like it really lent into that notion of know thyself, wasn't it? it was, it's about that self-knowledge. And if I know, like, the beauty for me is I know <laughs> that if you said, Joe, can you do this for me on Friday, and it's just a conversation like this, I, I would instantly have to go, that's great, I, I can do that for you, can you just send that through to me in an email, or, or I'll send that through you in an email, can you confirm with me if my understanding that's correct, or can you just hang on a second, I'm going to grab a notebook or whatever it is, know yourself, because then you know what you respond to. Claudia and I used a, a particular instrument with her team, so that she knew for different athletes, how to deliver information to them. The traditional way that coaches deliver a pre-game talk is with a large whiteboard next to them, typically, and, and remember that coaches are smart people, so, and they know lots of stuff. So they like to share what they know, and they write lots of stuff on whiteboards, which is great if you, if you learn well off reading. But if you don't, that's just a whole heap of overwhelm. You know, so it's, it's about, yeah, sorry, I've, take, I've taken this down a rabbit hole with your point there, but it's, it's, that, it's that ability to, to have that knowledge and, and to share that. Any other comments? Oh, could you go back to the previous slide? Quite, yes. If, if you could. So, in my experience, um, I've encountered many and worked for many officers and I'd like to think uh, people think that this about me was um, I obeyed it, not just because it was an order, but I wanted to please that guy. Like, um, in the era I was brought up in, um, that was the, the highest uh, level of accolade you could get, pretty much, that uh, you didn't have to order them to do it. You knew they'd do it because uh, uh, they wanted to please you, they knew that was what you wanted, uh, etc. Um, so we're, we're here talking about ethical uh, decision making and I'm not sure who Blaisdell is in the book, um, if he's a company commander or um, a platoon commander, um, but uh, that's not important. What is important is um, uh, we can order people to do stuff and then our soldiers do stuff to please us. But with that uh, comes where you have to think about your own leadership because soldiers will literally, if they think they're pleasing you, they can do bad things. Uh, um, and you have to realise that uh, when you're making ethical decisions that 
uh, you realize you need to realize that our subordinates, if they have this love and respect for you, that uh, in some cases they will do literally what you say to please you, um, uh, or because that's what they think you wanted them to do without regard for right and wrong. And ethical decision making is about everyone making the uh, ethically correct decision uh, pretty much for themselves because of the, the whole knowledge and understanding of uh, rules of engagement, laws of armed conflict, that sort of thing. So um, you need to know yourself uh, and if, if that's what you think, you also need to realise that you have to be an exemplar of this uh, ethical behaviour and uh, ethical leadership because soldiers will, uh, in the right uh, situation and context, do everything, but that might be actually be the ethically wrong thing. Thank you. Thank you. And I didn't know his right he was a platoon sergeant. I just looked at oh. They've got a list of all of them in the back of the book. I'd just like to comment my very similar experience in that uh, I was a section commander recruit instructor at Kapuka and going there and seeing the different kind of leadership types from the uh, SECOs there was you got the ones that are angry in the recruit's face, you know, and that fear kind of leadership. Uh, and then you got some other ones uh, who might have as great experience around soldiers and they want to be their friends and they want to get them to do things uh, through friendship and fear. And uh, I came to the realization that I didn't want to do either. Um, and how I try to be a good leader was through uh, giving them you know, correct information, uh, just being down the line and like showing them that I knew what, uh, what I was instructing and explaining things um, and good, delivering that why, the why information so they you know, took in the knowledge and, and it made sense to them. And I was neither in their face or you know, holding their hand and um, they wanted to do things for me um, because uh, you know, I had that kind of leadership. So. Thank you. Thank you for both of those comments. Um, and and that's, that is one of the, it's, it's such a nice lead in because that, that was where I wanted to take it to next, is that there is, there is much to be gained clearly from having a relationship with those that you lead that is, that is respectful and, and it enables you to get people to, to commit to the task and engage with the task and deliver the task. And then the downside to that potentially is that that relationship with you um, might then potentially um, be more than what is required, particularly when you're, when you're faced with an ethical challenge. And there was a, there was a quote from chapter one, and, and you've got a quote there in front of you, so I'll, I'll let you read, you read it. But they talk about um, that, that closeness of relationships, and I, and I guess that's particularly in the, in the instance that's talked about in the book, the particular incident, um, it, it's what happens when that relationship oversees the, the intent of the organisation. I'll move through the next quote because I think we've probably covered some, some, some of the discussion around it. So I um, wanted to speak to, to confidence and trust, which obviously is going to be 
um, particularly important when we're considering some sort of ethical, ethical challenge. Um, and this was particularly the case, again, this was a group of people who were, from their description, very much under-resourced um, and, and have, in terms of people and in terms of um, equipment and so forth. And so they talked about not having any confidence in demand. And so, and so we know that those elements are important. And so I, I have a five key points that I think really speak to what happens when you get that cohesiveness in an organisation, and it does not matter the size of the organisation, whether it is something as large as defence itself, um, or whether it be down to much smaller groupings of people. But this is something that we, all, we often talk about in the sporting context, and I'll, I'll say them quickly, and then I'll say them again slowly in case anyone wanted to write them down. Um, and I think many of the things I'm going to mention are very consistent with defence values um, as well, the ones that we see as we, as we come in through the gate. But for me, the teams that I've seen work effectively are those that have trust, respect, commitment, communication and care. Those are the five elements. I'll, I'll say them slowly. So it's trust, if, if you want to put them there. Trust, respect, commitment, communication and care. That I think that when, when, when people can trust each other, when there is respect for each other or for the position or for the task that's being done, trust, respect, when there is a commitment to the task, when there is effective communication around the task or what's happening, and there's that level of care. That's where you really start to create a climate where, where groupings of people could be successful. The other thing I would challenge you to do is before you apply that in any unit that you're in, whether it be at work, think about this in terms of your personal relationships. So if you're in a family setting or a friendship setting or a, a romantic partner, child, whatever that might be, I think those five principles apply within that. You know, a family that, work, a family that functions well, a family that has trust, respect, commitment, communication and care. And before you even worry about your family unit, Think about it just within yourself. What can you trust yourself to do? How do you respect yourself? What's your commitment to yourself? Like Brent said when he realised that the key, he had to change his commitment to himself, going from not being so worried about some of those, those smaller little one percenters that we often talk about. Um, communication. What is that conversation in your head? What are you telling yourself? Because that very much will influence your own confidence and your self-esteem. How do you care for yourself? So I, I really like those five things together because I think they start with each of us in, as an individual and then we apply those, we can then apply those at a much um, larger setting. And I think we can do that in communities as well as um, within, our, within our workplaces as well. So I think those elements are important as well. Um, the last point that I wanted to make before, and I think we've just got some time to decide, um, um, I'm set aside for some questions, so apologies for that pause, um, was from some of these studies. So I guess psychology's been interested for as long as we can think about ethics and behaviours and, and the curiosities of, of humans and how we behave and the way that we think and so forth. And interestingly for me, and it's funny how sometimes the way the world works, um, particularly for someone who takes a scientific point of view and then sometimes just random things happen. So a random thing happened for me a week ago. So a week ago, um, I, was not, I was not in Townsville, I was, it was school holidays and we were down um, on the Sunshine Coast and um, I was up in Malang 
you there. So I don't know if you've been to Mullaney, but Mullaney's a lovely little town up there. And one of the things I love about Mullaney is it's got lots of bookstores. So, um, and I had spent the morning reading a bit more of Black Hearts and, and fascinating read and would commend to anyone to read it. And no surprises that it, I, I know I found it as too many. It's a, it's a heavy read, you know, there's a lot of content in there to, to kind of absorb. So I was feeling a little bit like I needed to kind of freshen up a little bit. And I thought, I know, I need a book to read when I finish Black Hearts and I'm going to go for something light. Um, so I thought, I'm just going to go into this bookstore because I, like, I haven't walked into a bookstore for ages and I'm going to pick up a book. And whilst one should never judge a book by its cover, that's what I do when I buy books and when I buy wine. That's the two times that I judge things by their cover. And so I was walking through and somehow this book jumped out at me. So this was the other book that I've kind of I've sped read this. I, I really need to do it more justice and spend a bit more time with it. Anyway, it's called Humankind, A Hopeful History. And I thought, that's what I need. I need a little bit of optimism, a little bit of light after reading this other book. Didn't even open the contents page. Just went, that'll do because I was myself, that'll do. So I grabbed it off the shelf and bought the book. And then got it home and opened the contents page. Part two, after Auschwitz. In the basement of the Stanford University, Stanley Milgram and the Shock Machine, and the death of Catherine Susan Genovese. So I don't know if any of those um, pieces of research are familiar to you, but they are referring to the Zimbardo prison experiment, the Milgram shock experiment, and the death of Kitty Genovese. Now, you may or may not be familiar with them, but those are kind of key cornerstone pieces of research that have been written about, you know, for decades, decades literally, because some of these things happened back in the 50s, about human behaviour, and particularly turn to some of the bad stuff that humans do. And I'm never one normally to want to categorise behaviour as bad or good. I think, you know, that's it's probably too far too simplistic a way to look at behaviours. But you know, in, in the in the um, Zimbardo prison experiment, it was about, are you familiar with that story? There were 24 university students who were recruited, 12 were assigned as prison guards, 12 were as prisoners. Let's see what happens when we put this together. And Philip Zimbardo, who was the person who wrote it, and that was the other book that I, I have read before too, which is The Lucifer Effect, When Good People Turn Evil, and it's his book about that, and his experiences at Guantanamo Bay, and a whole range of other things. And basically, if you... It, there's, I know there's a doco on it and there's plenty that you can read about it if you haven't come across it, but essentially the behaviour wasn't great. Um, so the prison guards turned into genuine prison guards. They, they created a very um, problematic physical and psychological environment for the, for the prisoners and there was a whole range of consequences that came with it. With the Milgram shock experiment, it was uh, what will people do in terms of social obedience? And so uh, people were brought into the lab and said, you're going to be the administer of these questions. On the other side, there'll be another volunteer. Uh, you're to quiz them on the questions. And when they get them wrong, you are to administer an electric shock to them. And they wanted to see how far they could push people, like how much electric shock. And the re results of that were quite frightening. The, the death of Kitty Genovese was a, 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 talked about the bystander effect. So this was where a young woman was um, stabbed and, kill, and, and died in her street. Um, uh, and it was 3 a.m. And the reporting of that afterwards was that 38 neighbours peered through their windows and witnessed it and no one did anything. So it's that whole notion of the bystander effect. I won't do anything. I won't get involved because someone else will sort this out. It was that kind of notion. And then The Lord of the Flies, which is a novel that I'm sure you're possibly familiar with where a group of young boys get shipwrecked 
on an island and let's see what happens there. And essentially that all goes pear-shaped as well. And Piggy, the character in it, gets thrown off a cliff and you know, it all goes badly. Now, after all that cheery information, what this book does is turns a lot of that on its head. And it challenges the notion of what happens if people are inherently motivated for good. Because it talks about some of the parts of each of these pieces of research or stories that aren't typically spoken of. And when you, and it's interesting, when you draw some of the points out of this, and if you read um, uh, Zimbardo's book or any of the others, you start, to, you start to find out about it. Because what actually happened with the Zimbardo prison experiment, this wasn't just let's put two groupings of people together and see what happens. The prison guards were coached to be evil. They were, they were instructed to be tougher. And at times, the, because um, the author of this book, um, and this is a translation, but the author of this book actually went back to the original transcripts. And when you look at how the prison guards were instructed, yes, they did do some unspeakable things. They were told to do it. And they were told to do it because they were told this is part of an experiment and you are helping us to understand how people respond to obedience. So it was framed to them as, will you come and help us? In the Milgram shock experiment, the same thing happened. This is social obedience because we wanted you are, and there were people who gave accounts of why they did what they did. And they said, my daughter has this health condition and I figured the science would be helping her if we knew more about this. A big part of the reason why a lot of the people administered the shocks was when they were interviewed afterwards, they said, we thought it was a setup. So it wasn't that they thought they were administering electric shocks, it was that they thought that it was, it was fake. So it's an interesting idea. And I guess the reason that I, I mention all of this is that for those of you that have had a chance to read Black Hearts or those of you who intend to do so down the track, again, this is an assumption Joe is making, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm thinking that most people in this room are inherently good that you want to help others, and so that when you would read this, that you, like me, would read this and go, wow, look at how th these people got themselves into this scenario and did these behaviours. I would never do that. I know I wouldn't do that, because that's... An and what the challenge is, is how much of, of what we do and what we rationalise is because we link it to the good even if we do it in an obscure way. Now, I'm not saying that particularly, I mean, this is a, a heinous crime that, that occurred in this book, and so I, I'm not using it to explain that. Um, but what I, would, what I would encourage you to think about is much like we talked before about leaders, is that, that the opportunity to, good, to do good gets put in front of us, and that we want to do that. So we rationalise it. We use all those cognitive dissonance things that I was talking about earlier, and that might influence our decisions because in our minds, that leads us to a path of doing something that may then put us in an unethical place. So that was, that would, that was one of the things that I wanted you to consider because it's very easy, you know, sitting on my couch on the Sunshine Coast, reading the book going, oh gosh, imagine these people doing this. And I haven't spent 50 hours out at work, you know, driving up and down and then getting told when it was the last time I shaved and all those sorts of things and all the situations that they found themselves in. So sometimes when pe people's behaviour is linked to the good, that for some people is when they overstep the mark. And so then if you look at examples of things that we know about, um, and I don't profess to know too much about it in terms of <coughs> speculation, but there's been enough talked about it in the press that I feel I would even just mention it. Like take something like the ball tampering um, incident that happened within Australian cricket. 
you know, there was lots talked about, about win at all costs. Now, it overstepped the line clearly, but maybe there was some thinking around, but we're doing this for the good and that's why people get brought along on that journey. So I think sometimes that the tendency to think um, that sometimes the reasons that people do behaviours that we can look at and go, why would, you, why would you do that? It's not necessarily because the person is heading down the path of evil, but the person is actually trying to seek out the good. So sometimes that's something to be aware of as well when we're considering our ethical challenges. So as I said, I've, 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 I've thrown a lot at you this afternoon, so I'm very welcome to hear any, any questions or reflections that you might have. And my intention is to be here tomorrow morning as well to hear the other presentations. So I will be around if anyone has any individual questions that you wanted to ask me. But I guess in, in um, the opportunity of coming along today, thank you for that. I hope that I've given you some things to consider. Um, as I said, I did reflect through much of what was has been printed on the, not, no, I no that's, that's, that's a lie. I have not been through all the stuff that's on the COVID in relation to ethics. There's 130 articles. I've read about six. Um, so, so take that for what it was. But I will, I will take um, a, a quote recently about the value of ethics, the value of continuing the conversation. You can read that over my shoulder. Um, the value of continuing the conversation because I think the ethical piece is a, is a, is a moving understanding and the more conversations that you're having about with people about ethics in defence, I think can only serve the organisation and the nation well. So thank you for your time with me this afternoon. Um, I'm very happy to take any questions if, if that's what our next time allocation allows. And I wish you well with the particular exercise that you're working on, but then obviously in your journey beyond the conference as well. So thank you all.